This is Dr. Jimmy Nichols, equine nutritionist. On this podcast, we will explore unique cases, debunk popular myths, and break down advanced research data. Join me for a little fun, a lot of science, and some real-world advice for feeding horses. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Jimmy. Thank you for joining me for episode 43. I had an interesting listener question come in from Kylie, and she asked, I was wondering if you could do a podcast and address the difference that elevation makes on a horse in their diet, if any. I live at 9,100 feet above sea level, as well as my barrel horses. Is there something I should be doing, either nutrition or diet-wise or exercise-wise, to make sure that they're feeling and performing their best? I head to Oklahoma with my three-year-old in a few weeks, and I'm also wondering if I can help him go, if I can help him by uh, going to that lower elevation as well. Thanks a bunch. Love the podcast. I'm learning a lot. All right. Thanks for that question, Kylie. I really appreciate that. Um, so from a nutritional standpoint, I would say the absolute biggest thing that you can do um, when you make that trip to Oklahoma is you know, make sure that you try to keep your routine as close to normal as possible. Okay. Um, make sure that you haul your own hay uh, and don't try to buy hay when you get there. Okay. I've talked um, on past episodes about how beneficial microbes within the hind gut actually will tailor themselves to what you're feeding. So one of the worst things that you can do is make a change to your hay um, or your grain um, at the same time that you would be traveling into a new environment, um, particularly into that lower elevation. Now, um, from a functional nutrition standpoint, uh, there are some ingredients that that I do consider or that would be considered functional ingredients that can be fed to help that like they actually will help increase your horse's performance potential. Okay, so specifically speaking, um, there's a unique yeast uh, that has been shown to increase blood hemoglobin and also um, packed cell volume. And that's um, if you feed it on a daily basis. So basically, um, if you increase blood hemoglobin and if you um, increase the packed cell volume, there's going to be benefit to that horse because it's going to um, increase the blood's, the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. Okay, so athletic performance in horses is directly correlated um, to the total blood volume, meaning that when you increase blood oxygen carrying capacity, um, and, and you do that by increasing the number of red cells, you will actually see an increase in athletic ability. Okay. So packed cell volume and hemoglobin both rise during exercise. And they do that because they're basically responding to the body's need or the muscles need for more oxygen. Okay. So results from three different research trials showed that, um, athletic benefits for a horse um, that received a unique functional yeast, um, actually, um, that yeast actually improved or increased their um, athletic performance, okay? So that particular yeast can be found in all of the Intensify and the Equiline horse feeds from Blue Bonnet Feeds, and then it can also be found in the Stride Animal Health line um, in two different supplements. So one is ADR, both as that you can feed that as either a paste or a powder. Um, it comes in both forms. Or you can also find that that functional yeast in the Transform DSI pellets. Now, the other part of Katie's question was around elevation. So the quick answer there, um, Kylie, is that 
your your horses definitely have an advantage given that they live in that high elevation but are going to be running at a lower elevation okay so i'm i am definitely not a uh, sports physiology specialist so um I actually decided to lean on an article that was written by a world-renowned sports cardiologist. Uh, his name is Dr. Ben Levine, and he's actually the founder and director of the Institute for Exercise and, Envi- and Exercise and Environmental Medicine. Um, he has worked with Olympic athletes, and um, he provides some really good insight that I think that we can use when we're thinking about how our horses might actually react to those changes in elevation. So um, from this point forward, until I tell you otherwise, I'm actually going to be um, parroting words and concepts straight out of an article that was written by Dr. Levine. So one method um, that he has studied extensively is called altitude training. Um, He and his colleague, Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson, they actually have researched altitude training for um, 10 years with grants from the United States Olympic Committee. Um, And it actually was one of the longest sports medicine research grants in the history of the Olympic Committee. And it it, uh, enabled them to be able to publish uh, the definitive study on altitude training, which was printed and published in um, the scientific journal called the Journal of Applied Physiology. So what is altitude training? When we refer to high altitude in sports medicine, we generally mean um, 7,000 to 8,000 feet above sea level or higher. Okay, so Kylie's definitely in that higher category because I think she said she was at 9,100 feet above sea level. Now, low altitude is approximately 4,000 feet above sea level or lower. Okay, so in high altitude environments, the body is going to draw in less oxygen per breath than it would at lower altitudes. So that means that each breath is going to deliver less oxygen to the muscles. And that may sound like a negative thing, but if you live in higher altitudes and you get used to breathing that thinner air, it can actually enhance an elite athlete's athletic performance um, when they go to competitions at a lower altitude. Okay, so during workouts at high altitude, athletes are going to, they basically are going to feel like they're putting forth a lot more effort um, in order to perform the same that they would if they were were um, working out at sea level. So the increased rate of perceived exertion, that's what it's called, okay? So it's, it's the increased rate of perceived exertion is caused by um, something called altitude-induced hypoxia, which is basically just a decrease in the amount of oxygen that's being delivered into the muscles to burn fuel and then ultimately create energy for the body. So... As you know, as elite athletes, um, when they acclimate to a high altitude, they basically acquire more red blood cells, which then allows their blood to carry more oxygen. Okay, so if you have more red blood cells flowing through your, your veins, um, you're going to have a, a better capacity or better ability um, to carry more oxygen. Okay, so when um, when they compete at lower altitudes, um, athletes are going to get a natural boost to the muscles when they get that additional oxygen, when that extra oxygen is going to be available. Okay, so this this they call it this um, a blood expanding effect, and that can actually enhance performance in elite athletes by about one to two percent. Okay, so you know that sounds like a really small improvement. 
Um, but you know, that one to 2% can be the difference, you know, for let's take Olympic level athletes. I mean, that one to 2% can be the difference between missing the final cut for a competitive team and earning an Olympic medal. Um, I mean, it, it really, when you are at the elite level, that one to 2% makes a huge difference. So traditionally, um, elite athletes have lived and trained at high altitudes, such as uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado is a really popular location. Um, Park City, Utah is another really popular location for these athletes. Um, however, the, the research has actually shown that it's a little bit more effective um, to follow the, the live high, train low program. Okay. So rather than live high, train high, um, the, this particular research shows that if you live high, but train low, you actually get, um, performance enhancing effects basically. So, you know, these athletes in a perfect world should live and, and lightly train at the high altitude areas in order to acclimate their bodies to the, the lower oxygen levels. But then they should train hard and then actually compete in the lower altitude areas where the muscles can work harder with the maximal amount of oxygen available for, for aerobic performance. Okay. So how does that live high train low work? Um, basically the, the live high train low research is the training platform for most American elite athlete altitude programs. Okay. So to benefit athletes are going to spend the majority of their time, meaning 12 to 16 hours a day at the sweet spot of around a thousand feet above sea level. So if they get too much higher than that, they can actually develop altitude sickness. They can get lower blood plasma volume levels and, um, they can also suffer actually, uh, their sleep patterns can be um, affected. So training should typically occur. Um, so they're going to live at that 8,000 feet, but they should train at or below 4,000 feet. Okay. So again, they're living high and then they're coming down to a lower elevation to train. Um, research is a little bit inconclusive as to exactly how long an athlete must train low for that optimal benefit. Um, though it's critical to conduct all of the high intensity efforts at that low altitude. So that's what they know. Um, so again, live high and then do your really intense training and competing at those lower altitudes. So let's, let's say, you know, let's talk about, you know, what they say about the average person benefiting from altitude training. I mean, if you're not an elite athlete, like if you're not a professional, you're not an Olympian. Okay. You're, you're likely not going to benefit substantially from altitude training. Um, they said at, at least not compared to the benefits that you would be able to get by optimizing, you know, other key components of a training plan. All right. So, you know, making sure that you get a good training coach, have, you know, good workout program, good nutrition program, all of those things, those are going to far outweigh whether you live high, train low. Um, so, you know, Dr. Levine basically said that for recreational athletes, altitude training is not going to be the key to swimming faster, or running farther. Um, and he even mentioned that there's actually a lot of uh, kind of gimmicky items out there that are geared to that mid-level swimmer and runner. And, um, you know, so things like elevation training masks and hypoxia sleep chambers and high altitude training rooms. And basically what he says is, you know, don't waste your money on these gimmicks. Um, instead, invest in a good running or swimming coach and work with a dietitian. 
Um, you know, the, the essential component of successful training for non-elite athletes is just a well-designed program with coaching and appropriate buildups of intensity, duration, and recovery. Okay. So that paired with good nutrition, adequate hydration, and then, you know, just making sure that you've got a good support team and training partners, that's going to help you achieve your goal. Okay. So I'm no longer quoting from Dr. Levine's article now. Now this is just me talking. Um, I think the take-home message here is that, you know, living in a high altitude and then running at a low altitude may be a benefit for, you know, that finely tuned athlete. But, um, you know, it's it's part of gaining that extra 2 to 3% out of your horse, okay? So it's not going to take a mediocre horse and turn them into a world champion, all right. Um, but on, you know, and then I guess on the flip side, if you live at a lower elevation, I hope you haven't already listed your house for sale to move to the mountains. <laughs> okay. I, you know, so I would suspect that, um, much is true for our equine athletes. You know, if we provide them with proper nutrition, a consistent and appropriate exercise program, and then, you know, we make sure that they stay hydrated. Okay. You're going to be able to compete with the horses that live at any elevation. Um, you know, that said, I think Katie, you probably, or uh, Kylie, you probably are definitely at an advantage um, either way you go. So, you know, you, you may be able to get that extra one to 2% that um, people who live at lower elevations might not ever get. Um, but for anybody, whether you live at high or low elevations, um, again, it certainly doesn't uh, hurt anything to use those functional nutritional aids like the yeast that I had mentioned earlier. The other question I'm going to address is around vitamin E. Okay, so this listener writes in and says, could you do a podcast on vitamin E? I'm so interested in it with the synthetic versus the natural sources, and there seems to be confusion with the upper safe amounts to give. I want to make sure my sport horse is getting enough, but I'm concerned about over-supplementing. Okay, that also is a great question um, because I see a lot of um, companies, and it seems like especially supplement reps in particular, um, trying to kind of place this fear into people around what form of vitamin E that they're feeding to their horse. Okay, so natural vitamin E is sourced primarily from soybean or other vegetable oils. And it's going to generally be listed on a feed label as D-alpha-tocopherol. Okay, synthetic vitamin E is going to be listed on a feed label as dl alpha tocopherol. And it's basically going to be a mixture of um, natural vitamin E and then seven other molecular configurations of vitamin E. Okay, so both natural E and synthetic E are absorbed by the body. Okay, I think that's the biggest piece of misinformation that I run into. I see people getting really worried because someone told them that their horse can't absorb synthetic vitamin E, and that just simply is not true. Okay, now the difference in how the body uses the vitamin E source once it is absorbed um, does happen. Okay, so the body actually gives priority to natural E. And the reason for that is um, there's a, a specific transport protein in the liver that actually recognizes the natural E. And so it gives it priority or, or preference in the body to be absorbed. Um, or to be transported and used within the body. So basically, the body finds it easier to use the natural E compared to the synthetic E. But research shows that, um, so I mean, basically an animal can eat half the amount of natural E to get the same exact biological benefit as synthetic E. 
Okay, so it's not that synthetic E cannot be absorbed. It's just the way that the body uses the two is a little bit different. You have to feed, basically, if you need to feed twice the amount of synthetic E to get the same results as using uh, natural E, okay? Or vice versa, feed half the amount of natural E to get the same results as synthetic. So this is where it gets just a little bit tricky, okay? Um, vitamin E is a fat-soluble vitamin, okay? So that means that the body cannot readily excrete the excess. Um, that means that theoretically, you know, there is potential uh, for you to over-supplement, okay? Um, the other thing to consider is that nearly all NRC requirements for vitamin E were made using the synthetic form. So if we use the natural form E at half the rate that's listed by the NRC, it should theoretically supply the right amount of vitamin E. But, um, you know, let's say a feed manufacturer does that. Their vitamin E levels on their tag then are going to be, they're going to appear to be too low based on what NRC says that a horse needs. So for example, let's say that the NRC, and I'm sorry, um, NRC stands for National Research Council, and they're the ones that take all of the body of research and all of the data and compile it into a book that tells equine nutritionists exactly how much of every single nutrient that a horse needs in order to sustain life. Okay, so let's say that the NRC shows that I need 100 IUs of vitamin E. Okay, if I'm using synthetic vitamin E, I'm going to put 100 IUs of vitamin E in the feed, and I'm going to list 100 IUs of, of vitamin E on the tag, okay? Well, if I'm using natural E, I have to choose. Either I put half the amount, so I put 50 IUs in the feed in order for the animal to get the same absorption as 100 IUs of synthetic, or I have to put the full 100 IUs of natural in there so that the tag matches what the NRC says needs to be in there. But I know based on the research that the animal is basically going to get double what they're supposed to, okay, because the body is essentially able to, to use that at twice the rate or, or twice as efficiently. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that double is bad, um, especially, I mean, when you're at low levels like this, I mean, when we're talking 50 or 100 IUs of vitamin E, I mean, that that's not that much vitamin E. I'm not going to get too worried about that. Um, you know, the only thing you have to think about from that aspect is just the cost. You know, natural E is, is much more expensive. So if you're using natural E at the rates that you would normally use synthetic E, it's going to drive the price of your feed up pretty substantially. So I'm not by any means, a, I'm, I'm not a propon proponent of one over the other necessarily. So my general rule of thumb um, that I've gone with so far to keep that delicate balance between, you know, keeping you guys' feed from being $100 a bag <laughs> to, you know, also providing what is best for the horse and doing what we know um, from research and what the National Research Council has shown um, my general rule of thumb is to use synthetic forms of vitamin E in just your normal feeding situations. Okay, I do that um, in the feeds so that our tag guarantees are in line with what the National Research Council recommends. Okay, then if I'm dealing with a more specific situation that requires vitamin E at higher levels, 
Um, so I think of this more in terms of functional nutrition. So going beyond what your normal basic nutrition requires and using an ingredient to get functional results within the body. Okay. When I'm doing that, that's when I'm going to lean on natural vitamin E. And so I typically will go with a product from Stride Animal Health that is actually, I mean, it's, it's pretty simply named. It's just called vitamin EC. Um, and I use that supplement because it contains natural vitamin E in both the alpha and the gamma forms. And I generally am going to use natural E supplements on horses that are dealing with things like EPM or neurologic issues. Um, I also like to use that on horses that are dealing with um, skin allergies and skin irritations. Um, vitamin E has really, really good antioxidant properties to it. Um, so it can kind of help prevent, you know, those free radical scavengers and things like that. So my general rule of thumb, I guess, to kind of put a bow on this and wrap up my answer to that question, she asked, you know, how much is too much or how much do you feed? If I'm feeding that, um, that horse that has EPM or neurologic issues or dealing with skin allergies or, you know, kind of that special situation. Um, I generally am going to feed, you know, 5,000 IUs per day. Um, I might go up to 10,000 IUs for a short amount of time, but I'm, I'm generally not going to ever feed more than 10,000 IUs per day of vitamin E to a horse. And just keep in mind that, you know, Try to think of that, you know, as, as a total diet number. Okay. So whatever feed or supplement you're feeding, that's going to provide some vitamin E, the forage that your horse eats, the hay they eat, you know, that's also going to provide some vitamin E. So just make sure that you're taking that total number into account. Um, and then, you know, as far as how much in your grain, um, basically, you know, I formulate feeds to match what the NRC says that the horse needs um, based on that feeding rate and based on that horse's um, activity level or lifestyle. And so that's why you'll see, you know, um, let's take, you know, Intensify Omega Force, for example, is a very concentrated feed, meaning it's a low feeding rate feed. Okay, so you would get, you know, if you only have to feed four pounds of that to a performance horse versus, you know, other feeds you might have to feed eight pounds of. Okay. Well, your vitamin E concentration is going to be much higher. So you're going to see more IUs of vitamin E in a low, low feeding rate feed like Omega Force, um, because you have to, to have more density in your nutrition. Now, if I'm, if I'm working or if I'm recommending a feed that has a high feeding rate feed, let's say we need a high fiber feed for a senior horse that can't eat hay. Um, your vitamin E concentration, those IUs are going to be lower on the feed tag because you're feeding larger volumes of that feed. Okay. So it's all about getting to that end point of what the total diet amount of IUs are um, per day. So in general, you can't, um, the only way you could really get into trouble with vitamin E is if you were um, using a very potent vitamin E supplement and feeding that at, you know, double, triple, quadruple the recommended rates. Um, you know, you, you certainly don't want to, um, so I, I think that the, um, and I should have looked this up in the NRC before I started talking, but I think that the upper safe limit for vitamin E is like a thousand IUs, um, per kilogram, um, of dry matter, I think is what the NRC says the upper tolerable is. So, I mean, you have to try pretty hard to get there, um, but it sure enough can be done. So it, again, as a general rule of thumb, um, 
you know, you don't necessarily need to supplement with a whole lot of extra vitamin E um, unless your feed doesn't have enough of it or if you're trying to deal with some special situations with a horse. So I hope that answered um, the questions from both of those listeners. And if if you guys enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share it um, through your favorite social media channel and use the hashtag FeedRoomChemist. And if anyone has questions or topic ideas that you want me to address in the future, please shoot an email to info at acbluebonnet.com, or you can always just leave us a voice message through your podcasting app. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Feed Room Chemist. If you like what you hear, be sure to share with your friends, post to social media, or give us a review. And as Winston Churchill used to say, no hour of life is wasted that is spent in the saddle. So go saddle up.